This is Collapse Talk, and this is your host, Gabriel. I'm hoping that you all had a safe and pleasant last couple weeks, or month, actually. It's been over a month since my last episode, and uh, just, you know, I do want to apologize, at least, for getting this out so late. I've just had a lot going on. My life is not stable, <laughs> but it's, uh, I'm sure you all understand, and uh, honestly, you know, doing this kind of work doomer talking podcasting it's uh you very much have to like manage your mental health so i don't want to like be always up and you know always up in the chat or you know some other twitter feed just like oh look at this and that so yeah uh i'm gonna record now at least it's a pretty okay uh, time for me to record although i had some car problems and i'm getting that sorted out but yeah just a lot happened obviously um you know, we've had the Derek Chauvin case, the, the Suez Canal, um, cryptocurrency movements. So I just want to just talk about the cryptocurrency before I do in the sec, the main segments, meaning the domestic, the international and natural, uh, fields of collapse. But I at least want to talk about cryptocurrency first because I was talking about Dogecoin and other stuff. And yeah, there was a big drive there. And, um, even now that I'm looking at it, there's some, movements so yeah unfortunately though i was holding a good amount but i had to make uh, some uh, basically emergency purchases i mean that was the whole purpose of getting into cryptocurrency for you know emergency uh spending but yeah i had to make some i had to sell off especially before that major pump which really oh my goodness i was yeah lesson learned there i mean it's still early in terms of cryptocurrency but it yeah, man, man, I'm just like, just, I'm just like reminiscing over how much I could have made if I just hold, held like maybe a couple more days. So yeah, so buy and hold, it's still cheap. So definitely do that. Um, if the floor for Dogecoin stays at a quarter or so, then the next pump could be like, I would say like into like $3 or something like that. Like it could be big. So yeah, just going to buy incrementally, you know, pennies and days at a time so yeah another diverse cryptocurrencies but you know again i'm not i don't want that to be the main uh subject matter on this program i don't want to turn into the cryptocurrency guy but it seems viable at least now and you know we're already having inflation problems like there's some significant price increases especially in terms of food so I'm definitely going to have to start uh, budgeting there. I mean, I should have always been doing that, but now it's really noticeable. So, yeah. So that's at least what I wanted to open up with uh, before I go into the main uh, subjects, uh, starting with the domestic uh, imperial decline that we're experiencing here. But, yeah, I mean, at least in terms of, you know, it in terms of good news, I mean, it's still tragedy overall, but... At least we have something to latch on to, although it's still bittersweet because people are still dying. Black, especially, uh, you know, Dante Wright. And now we have Andrew Brown in North Carolina and also a um, young girl was also shot. So, yeah, man, like it. 
I feel like they did this. They gave us this because it was so obvious. And I mean, the police were even like just throwing him under the bus because it was just so heinous. But it really just goes to show that this overall police issue is not going anywhere. And it's probably going to continue to escalate. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to focus at least on the Derek Chauvin trial before I continue. Uh, so I'm reading from local station, uh, Minnesota CBS local station, uh, WCCO. And, um, yeah, I'll just continue on. Uh, so following nearly a year of protest, introspection, and raw emotion, former Minneapolis officer Derek Chauvin, who last May held a knee down on George Floyd's, ne George Floyd's neck, for more than nine minutes, has been found guilty of second-degree murder and two other charges in Floyd's death. Chauvin has been remanded to the custody of Hennepin County. He was led out of the courtroom in handcuffs. The Minnesota Department of Corrections says Chauvin was booked into Minnesota Correctional Facility Oak Park Heights just before 5 p.m. as part of an agreement with the Hennepin County Sheriff's Office. According to a pool report, George Floyd's brother... Floyd was praying in the courtroom before the verdict was read. I was just praying they would find him guilty, he said after the conviction, as an African-American who usually never get justice. Uh, family members of George Floyd, along with the attorney Ben Crump and Reverend Al Sharpton, held a press conference about an hour after the verdict was read. Sharpton first led a prayer with the family. Quote, Let's lean into this moment and let's make sure that this moment will be documented for our children as they continue on the journey to justice, knowing that the blood of George Floyd will give them a betrayal to find a way to a better America, Crump said. The verdict was read in Hennepin County Court just after 4 p.m. Tuesday. In addition to the second-degree murder conviction, the jury found Chauvin guilty of third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. In a statement, Governor Tim Waltz called Chauvin's conviction an important step forward for justice in Minnesota. Quote, George Floyd mattered. He was loved by his family and his friends, Attorney General Keith Ellison said at a press conference Tuesday afternoon. But this isn't why he mattered. He mattered because he was a human being, and there is no way that we can turn away from that reality. President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris spoke Tuesday evening on Chauvin's conviction. Uh, Darnella, or I should say, uh, reading from uh, a tweet from Caroline Cummings, quote, today's verdict is a step forward. Nothing can ever bring George Floyd back, President Biden says, but as the verdict can be a, quote, big step towards justice in America. Darnella Frazier, who recorded the video of George Floyd's death that spread quickly online on May 25th, 2020, wrote on Facebook that justice has been served. In a statement Tuesday evening, Minneapolis Police Chief Medaria Aradondo, I shouldn't have, I don't know if I should say that in a Spanish accent, Aradondo, uh, who fired Chauvin one day after Floyd's death and testified against him in his trial, thanked the jurors for their immense responsibility and honorable civic duty. He also called for peace and calm. Now is the time to use our hum humanity to lift each other up and not tear our city down, Aradondo said. It took the jury roughly 10 hours of deliberation to reach their verdict, about four hours Monday afternoon and evening, and another six hours Tuesday starting at 8 a.m. Chauvin was convicted on the following charges. Second degree unintentional murder means causing death without intent by committing a felony. 
Second degree manslaughter is causing death by unreasonable risk. Second or third degree murder means causing death by an eminently dangerous act showing a depraved mind. Yeah, and certainly when you see his, uh, you know, just, yeah, yeah, depraved look is uh, certainly a good description because he, like, the, his eyes, he's just like, what? Like, especially when they read the verdict, he's like, wait, consequences? Like, <laughs> it's just, oh my goodness, man. And then there's like thousands of police officers like this guy. Um, so uh, earlier Tuesday, WCCO's Esme Murphy uh, reported that Hennepin County Court employees were notified to stop working at all downtown courthouse locations and to exit downtown immediately. Public safety officials said there would be no statewide curfew Tuesday night following Chauvin's conviction. Crowds gathered at the Hennepin County Government Center, George Floyd Square at 38th and Chicago, and in Brooklyn Center, where 20-year-old Dante Wright was shot and killed by police in the middle of Chauvin's trial. The maximum penalty on second-degree murder charges is up to 40 years of prison, and the third-degree murder charges carries a sentence of up to 25 in prison. Uh, the maximum penalty on second-degree manslaughter is up to 10 years in prison. George Peter Cahill said sentencing will take place in about eight weeks. So there's about there's, there's a bit more that, but I think that kind of wraps up exactly what has been going down. And as you you know also. Uh, heard me say that they had uh, another instance of a police shooting with Dante Wright. So, and, and like, and there's a connection actually. So, uh, George Floyd's girlfriend was the teacher of Dante Wright. So, I mean, like, it just goes to show like the, but just, you know, the transitive connection that people have towards this just overall police state. So, yeah. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and read uh, at least, um, about this uh, Dante Wright case, because this also brought uh, looting and also unrest. And I mean, there was basically a military occupation in Minneapolis during this whole trial. So I think, I mean, there was, um, the the defense was actually trying to uh, sequester the jury. So because they didn't want this uh, outside influence of uh, agitation, I guess they were framing it in that way. Yeah, so, and of course the, the judge, he, denied that but i mean it just goes to show that like this like problem is not going away and i'm like i'm still going to read another instance of a police shooting and there's another state of emergency but uh i'll continue with dante wright first so the parents of dante wright a 20 year old black man who was shot and killed by a white officer in minneapolis suburb on sunday said they can't accept the notion that their son's killing was a mistake quote i lost my son he's never coming back dante wright's father Aubrey White said or told ABC News Robin Roberts in an exclusive interview Tuesday on Good Morning America, I can't accept that a mistake that doesn't even sound right. He added, the officer has been on the force for 26 years. I can't accept that. Dante Wright was driving in Brooklyn Center about 10 miles northwest of Minneapolis when he was stopped by police on Sunday afternoon. The officers initially pulled him over for an expired registration tag on his car but determined during the traffic stop that he had an outstanding gross misdemeanor warrant, according to Brooklyn Center Police Chief Tim Gannon. As police attempted to take him into custody, Dante Wright re-entered the vehicle and one of the officers fired their weapon, striking him. The officer, identified by authorities as Kim Potter, a 26-year veteran of the Brooklyn uh, Center Police Department, intended to deploy her taser instead of her gun when she accidentally shot Dante Wright, Gannon said. Sped off, traveling several blocks, 
before crashing into another vehicle. A female passenger in Dante Wright's car sustained non-life-threatening injuries during the crash and was transported to a nearby hospital. The passengers in the other vehicle were not injured, according to Gannon. Officers and medical personnel, quote, attempted life-saving measures on Dante Wright, but he died at the scene, Gannon said. Dante Wright's mother, Kim Wright, told ABC News that her son had called her during a traffic stop. She said he told her that the police had pulled him over due to air fresheners hanging in his rearview mirror. She told him to take them down and to let her speak with police over the phone if they asked for his car insurance so that she could give them the information. That's when she heard police ask her son to step out of the vehicle. Quote, Dante said, for what? Am I in trouble? I heard the, the phone getting put down pretty hard. Katie Wright said on GMA during Tuesday's exclusive interview, quote, and then I heard scuffling and the girl that was with him screaming and I heard an officer ask for them to hang up the phone and then I didn't hear anything else. Try to call back three, four times and the girl that was with him answered the phone and said that they shot him and that he was lying in the driver's seat unresponsive. The mother recalled with tears streaming down her face. And then I heard an officer ask her to hang up the phone again. And then after that, that's the last time I've seen my son. I haven't seen him since. Uh, she said she's unsure why the situation escalated. Quote, I know my son was scared. He's afraid of the police. And I just seen and heard the fear in his voice. She added, quote, but I don't know why. And it should ne have never escalated the way it did. The mother described her son as, quote, an amazing, loving kid who had a big heart, bright smile and loved basketball. Quote, he had a two-year-old son that's not going to be able to play basketball with him. He had sisters and brothers that he loves so much. Katie Wright said, quote, he, had, he just had his whole life taken away from him. He, we had our hearts pulled out of our chest. He was my baby boy. Yeah. At least now, though, they've, they have arrested her. Um, Potter? Potter. No, um, he, they've arrested her on manslaughter charges. I mean... It, it 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 seems just like uh, gross negligence, incompetence. You know, you would be able to know which you know. It's I don't know. You you should be able to know the difference between a taser and a gun. Like if you're in the police force, especially after 26 years. So it's it's yeah. I, I mean, oh, she was a training officer. Yeah. Again, they're just they're they keep killing us, and this was right in the middle of the George Floyd protest. And or the George Floyd trial, and yeah, I mean, honestly, though, I haven't been keeping up with like these demonstrations as much because I mean, it's just the same thing over and over, or at least it's just not as uh escalated and violent as it was in the summer. Although, time will tell if we do get riots, uh, but yeah, man, so I mean, it's just not going away. This police issue, it's just not. And of course, they're also trying to dig up whatever dirt they can on Dante. I mean, they're posting pictures of him with a gun. Like, oh, look, he posed with the gun. Yeah. You know, whenever I see those situations of, um, you know, peace, people posing with their guns, I mean, like, I don't usually do that sort of thing. I don't necessarily approve of, like, trying to look tough with your gun. But, you know, you have a right. I mean, it's, you know, it's your gun. It's your piece. Uh, it's just, Yeah. It's merely the optics because a situation like this happens and then they're going to pull out whatever they can. Because believe me, if something happens to me, they're going to pull out this podcast and all the things that I've said, all the things that I've posted online. You know, 
with zero context, which I mean, I'm obviously trying to be provocative with the things I say, but you know, people, they would much rather frame you as some sort of menace or a threat rather than, you know, looking at the substance of what you're saying. They, they can't necessarily combat intellectually, so they have to use other ways of um, manipulation and the depicting of essentially their, their rivals. You know, yeah, I would much rather not have any rivals doing this sort of stuff. But I don't know why I'm getting distracted. I'm talking about Dante Wright. Um, it, it's just they're, they're going to do that with uh, Dante. They're also going to do that with uh, this case with Andrew Brown. Um, another shooting. I mean, like, it just keeps happening over and over and over again. Um, so I'm reading from The Hill. Uh, quote from The Hill. State of emergency declared in North Carolina City ahead of Andrew Brown footage release. And this came out yesterday, so this is, like, very recent. Um, so a state of emergency has been declared in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, as the city awaits the release of body camera footage of the police shooting of Andrew Brown Jr. Mayor Betty Parker issued a declaration on Monday in anticipation of the footage's release after Pasco Tank County Sheriff Thomas S. Wooten said last week that county officials sought to ask a court to release the footage this week. Brown, a 42-year-old black man, was fatally shot by police in the city last week. At the time, deputies were said to be attempting to serve an arrest warrant for felony drug charges. But when a car began to leave the scene, deputies fired at the vehicle. In the past week, a number of activists and politicians have called on local officials to release the body camera footage from the shooting. Wooten said over the weekend that he wanted to make sure the footage's release did not compromise the national, the, did not compromise the North Carolina State Bureau's of Investigation's current probe into the shooting. Quote, people have falsely claimed that my office has the power to do so. That is not true. Only a judge can release the foot video, he said in a statement on Saturday. During the press conference calling for the footage's release on Monday morning, civil rights attorney Benjamin Crump accused authorities of wanting to sweep the shooting under the rug. Before you all showed up, they just wanted to sweep it under the rug, as they have done other brothers and sisters who have been unjustifiably killed by the police or by the people that's supposed to protect and serve us, Crump said. It's so very important that we have transparency because if we don't have transparency, we can never get the accountability. And if we never get accountability, we can't get to healing and trust. He accounted or he continued. So if we want to heal this community, if we want to heal this family, then Sheriff Wooten, then, then you need to be transparent. What is it on this video? Quote, what is it? What is it on this video that is so damning that you would risk your career and risk losing your job so that the people can't see it? What is it? He added. In her declaration on Monday, Parker said she decided to issue the alert in order to ensure the safety of the citizens and their property as, quote, city officials realized there may potentially be a period of civil unrest within the city following the public release of that footage. In order to absolutely ensure that the city has all state and or federal resources necessary to protect our citizens during such period of civil unrest, we deem it necessary to declare a state of emergency, she wrote. The mayor said she directs all departments and agencies of Elizabeth City to take whatever steps necessary to protect life and property 
public infrastructure and provide such emergency assistance deemed necessary to preserve public safety. The alert was scheduled to begin on Monday at 8 a.m. and will continue quote, until deemed no longer necessary to protect their citizens from and such threat to their safety, the order stated. Park also, Parker also said the city officials will be, will be filing a formal request with the Pasquotank County Sheriff's Office to seek the public release of the footage on Monday. So again, it, this is just a repeat of what we had just been through. And, you know, I get tired of seeing all these police shootings, like these unnecessary killings. So, like, you know, I don't think I'll see it. But it's, yeah, man, it just keeps keeps happening. And as they said, you know, a, a felony drug charge, whatever that was supposed to be for. But, like, they, they do these raids, right? These uh, swamp raids, because I'm assuming that's kind of down here. And it's like uh, uh, a raid out of, like, Fallujah. Like, where, you know, they're trying to get insurgents. Like, it, it's just... So when they see a fucking car, I guess they they just shoot him. Like was it like he didn't even have a warrant for him? So like, yeah. Well, man. Again, just unnecessary killing. People keep dying and nothing changes. And yeah, man. I don't know, man. I get tired of all this stuff. You know, that's why I kind of take it easy when it comes to like releasing content because it's just nothing's changing. What the fuck is changing, man? Really. I, I'm, I'm still under the same boot as before. It's just a different, uh, you know, it's just frustrating. I, I feel like we're entering a phase of authoritarianism where people are purely concerned about their side winning and no longer standing for any kind of principled positions. And, you know, that's not good because you look at, I've been recently like binging a lot of like Roman history, especially the fall of the Roman Republic. And, you know, that, that factionalism is parallel to today. I mean, like, it's pretty obvious, although, like, at least the Romans, like, had, like, adequate infrastructure. <laughs> at least they had something. Uh, yeah, I don't know, man. Like, wow, man. Anyway, I do want to at least talk about, you know, steps that are being uh, put in place to uh, reduce this militarization of our police force. But, you know... It's mainly coming from, you know, House representatives. Meanwhile, there's other uh, statistics that show that the 1033, uh, which is like the, the program that allows the Department of Defense to lend equipment uh, to police departments. Like, yeah, I'll just I'll elaborate. So first, I want to talk about the House Democrats push from the Hill and they're pushing Biden to limit transfers of military grade gear. So. Reading, uh, more than two dozen House Democrats are pushing President Biden to issue an executive order banning the transfer of military-grade weapons to local police departments. In a letter to be sent to the White House on Tuesday afternoon, uh, this article was out on the 6th, April 6th, uh, Tuesday afternoon, the lawmakers led by Representative Hank Johnson of Georgia argue an executive order is quote, a reasonable step towards demilitarizing our police forces while preserving the safety of our communities. Quote, decades of militarization of our nation's law enforcement have led to some police departments looking more like an occupying army than a community-based regulatory arm of state and local government. The 29 Democrats wrote in the letter, a draft of which was obtained by the Hill, quote, our neighborhoods need to be protected, including from dangers posed by the militarization of police. 
they added, quote, this reasonable step falls squarely within your executive authority as president of the United States. This letter specifically asked Biden to issue an executive order mirroring language in a bill Johnson introduced last month. Johnson's bill would place broad restrictions on what's known as the 1033 program, which allows the Pentagon to transfer excess military equipment to U.S. police departments. Democrats' letter is, is the latest step in a campaign to push Biden on the issue. In addition to the letter and Johnson's bill, Representative Nidia Velasquez plans to introduce a bill next week that would completely repeal the 1033 program, according to a draft of the bill attained by the Hill, and tension on the 1033 program was renewed last year amid the nationwide protests over police violence and racial injustice sparked by George Floyd's death in Minneapolis police custody. Quote, law enforcement's response to the civil rights demonstrations last summer shows irrefutable proof of our police forces increasing aggression and brutality, images of local police and military vehicles, with military-grade weaponry trained on citizens exercising their constitutional right to peacefully protest, Democrats wrote in their letter. Former President Obama curtailed the 1033 program in 2015 after local police protests in Ferguson, Missouri, using military-grade equipment, but the Trump administration rescinded the restrictions in 2017. Biden had been expected to reimpose the Obama-era limits on the program as one of the dozens of executive orders he issued in the first weeks of, the, of his presidency, but no such directive materialized. A White House spokesperson did not immediately respond to a request for a comment Tuesday on the idea of an executive order mirroring Johnson's bill or whether the president still plans to reimpose the Obama-era limits. The Democrats' letter Tuesday urges Biden to go further than the limits imposed during the Obama administration, saying they, quote, stop short of full reform. Johnson's bill would prohibit the Pentagon from sending police departments controlled firearms, ammunition, bayonets, grenade launchers, grenades including stun and flashbang grenades, explosives, certain controlled vehicles including mine-resistant vehicles, armored or weaponized drones, combat-configured or combat-coded aircraft, silencers, and long-range acoustic devices. Oh my god, it's just insane. It's a fucking military. I it's like the and this is primarily a, a lot of these police departments are just like oh those black lives matter people that we have to arm ourselves and my goodness, man, our police force, it, it really is a rogue militia. I, I cannot just, I've never met a cop, and I live in like a small town, like college town, so a lot of these cops do not like people like myself, young college students, especially you know, non-white college students, like, it, oh my goodness, man. You know, again, I've, I've had very few interactions with police, but... I, I just one of these days, man. I'm gonna come. This is gonna be the wrong cop, man. Anyway, so let me finish this article. The same language was included in a sweeping police reform bill the House passed last month, but that legislation, dubbed the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, faces an uphill battle in getting the 60 votes needed to pass a Senate with a 50-50 party divide. The letter argues Johnson's bill quote, not only fixes what is broken, but does so without compromising the integrity of the parts of the program that provide integral 
office and safety equipment to law enforcement agencies. Quote, we believe that the provisions of my bill, the Stop Militarizing Police Enforcement Act, in the form of an executive order, is a necessary step to implement common sense reforms to the 1033 program, end quote, the lawmakers wrote. Quote, only you, Mr. President, have the power to make this change immediately. And he absolutely has that power. The police are under the executive branch, so he can just do it. Again, man, there's so much that he can do, and he, yeah, he's just framing it within, well, I don't know if I have the authority. No, you do. You do. It, yeah. So, I'm going to read um, more on this 1033 program and just the different uh, graphs that are available. So, I'm reading from the, which is a blog post, a Substack post. Stephen Semler, and he's a, I'm guessing a security analyst, national security analyst. So, I'll just read what this post is on. Yeah. So, really, it's uh, the flow of military equipment to police through quarter one of 2021. And the situation, the Pentagon's 1033 program is the primary mechanism by which police acquire military hardware. Most of the items transferred are innocuous, but that's only in terms of quantity. In terms of value, combat gear dominates the ledger. Not surprisingly, the latter fact typically escapes police DOD discourse. Materiel is what's count counted here. The values below reflect that of military hardware, controlled equipment, uh, transferred through the 1033 program and not the office supplies or generators or t-shirts or whatever quote uncontrolled equipment um so they they looked at this control they they showed what exactly was transferred um, in terms of controlled equipment so most common items sent to police this quarter were firearm magazines 940 total 600 for nine millimeter pistols 331 for 556 millimeter rifles m4 m16s or and nine for seven six two Rifles, M14s, presumably. Military vehicles, 246, comprise most of the total acquisition value, uh, 21 million out of 33 million. And then there's other key findings of the uh, quarterly reports. Uh, key findings of quarterly average of 1033 control transfers from 2013 to 2016 with 61 million, 2017 to 2020, 29 million. In the quarter, first quarter of 2021, 33 million. So yeah, it's a pretty substantial uh, transfer. And I mean, you can see um, in this chart. I don't have I don't have the screen recorder on, but yeah, you see in 2014, 2015, you know, Ferguson, Missouri, uh, went up to uh, 200 million, and then it has subsided, but now it's starting to pick back up. So yeah, I mean, it's they're they're continuing this transfer of militarization um and i don't think it's going to go down i don't think it's going to slow down anytime soon uh the military equipment police have received through the 1033 program is now biden's policy by him not doing anything about it it makes it biden's problem the defense logistics agency released its quarterly update last week indicating that nearly 34 million in military gear went to police through the first quarter of this year up from 12 million from the last quarter, or up 9 million from the third quarter of 2020, or up 10 million from the second quarter of 2020. Biden didn't respond in any way. That's a tactic endorsement or tacit endorsement approval. Um, nor did he do anything about it or 
nor did he do anything about the $1.4 billion already out there since 2013 when he took office. He sided with police unions instead. 1033 transfers aren't like arms export sales. The military gear that flows through 1033 is on a conditional loan. The material can be taken back. Biden can order it to be done himself without Congress. He has not. This chart reflects his policy decision. So, yeah, he absolutely can, you know, do something about it. So, yeah, the total acquisition value of these transfers is uh, $1.4 billion. Yeah. Here's a wild, you know, uh, prediction, though. Because I believe that if he ever made such an order, you would see police departments mutinying. Yeah. I would not... I mean, I, I've been, you know, reading about the uh, the Yugoslavia collapse. And yeah, I mean, like, police departments, like, mutinied. And it's going to get wild, man. I'm just... I Like, on what planet... There's all sorts of, like, MRAPs in this town already. And this is just a college town. It kind of makes sense, though, because there's, there's, like, maximum security prisons, like, right off the city. So, makes sense. That's, like, worst-case scenario. Um, but still, it's, like, a part of me also thinks that they have uh, those weapons and th that gear because of the college as well. Because, you know, you don't want no socialist commies trying to take over. Um, Jesus, man. But, yeah, so that is... Um, what is you know being done so far to address these uh, problems in our police departments? You know the militarization, uh, largely linked with the war on drugs. So it's just yeah, yeah. This is I mean, this is only going to get worse. I'm sorry. You know you can convict these officers all you want, but it doesn't change the overarching you know police state problem that we have. I mean like. You know, the police officers, like, they honestly expect people to pay their meals whenever they go out and stuff like that. I'm, I'm not sure it's, like, at that point yet where they're like, you got to pay for me. But, you know, like, they got an attitude problem, man. A lot of cops have an attitude problem. Like, I remember working at this uh, restaurant position. I'm just, like, minding my own business. And these fucking cops were, like, eyeing me down. I'm like, I'm just working. I'm literally doing what y'all want me to do. And I'm still, like, a target, like... Jesus Christ, man, you could be like the most innocent person and if you fit a certain profile for them, they're you're they're going to make your life terrible. So, I mean, and there was like another like there's a real sociopathy problem also. Like I was reading another report of like these officers uh, looking at a video of this like elderly woman that they've like manhandled and like disjointed her shoulder like and they're just like, hey, yeah, like it, it's it, it's fucked up, man. Like, so the idea of revolution and stuff like that, like, you're going to be up against, like, some real depraved fucking monsters, man, because they're, they're domestic abusers, highest rate of domestic abuse, you know, I mean, they, they view themselves as, as like, warrior cops, so, like, like, it, it's incredibly futile if you think about it because like you have the knights right and the men at arms serving the lords that are not there to protect the peasants but to keep them in line so it's just like that dynamic has not changed at all that's basically what they are except you know at least you know knights have some code of chivalry or something but i mean these cops they just it's just power pure power and uh domination 
I mean, for real, man, they're sick in the head. And like, I've seen a lot of different cops and they've just, yeah, man. Anyway, so that is uh, at least what I wanted to talk about with, uh, you know, the concern of like the George Floyd protest, just police state problems that we're currently facing. And yeah, so I at least wanted to, you know, continue with another issue, uh, especially considering our, uh, you know, health, health care issues, health care problems. Because Lord knows we have that. Um, I wanted to at least elaborate on a proposal from Pramia Jayapal on a Medicare for All Act, which is kind of too late. You know, everybody kind of forgot the force to vote thing. Really, like the whole force to vote ordeal, people just got distracted by Jimmy Dore. That was it. You, you guys didn't want to take a real stand on, on a vitally important issue when you could have had that chance, but instead now we're. Now you got Pramila trying to say, oh, well, now we're going to do Medicare for all when you've lost all your leverage. So, yeah, and this was back in March. And I mean, obviously, it's dead on arrival because, like, it, you guys didn't. Yeah. And I could say some things about AOC, but, you know, everybody gets all wound up about that. So I'm just going to focus on Pramila right now. So, right. So reading from her uh, her website, quote, today, U.S. Representative Pramila Jayapal and Debbie Dingell introduced the Medicare for All Act of 2021 transformative legislation that would guarantee health care to everyone in America as a human right at a moment in which nearly 100 million people are uninsured or underinsured during a pandemic, endorsed by 300 local, state, and national organizations, and co-sponsored by more than half of the House Democratic Caucus, including 14 committee chairs and key leadership members, and the landmark bill provides comprehensive benefits to all with no co-pays, private insurance premiums, deductibles, or other cost sharing. The Medicare for All Act of 2021 is being introduced in the House of Representatives one year to the day that the COVID-19 virus was first confirmed in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. This devastating public health crisis, uh, which has taken the lives of more than 540,000 Americans, has only underscored how the country's current healthcare system leaves millions behind. As unemployment skyrocketed to historic levels during the pandemic, billions of additional families lost their healthcare and the country's experienced the highest increase in number of uninsured Americans ever recorded. Quote, while this devastating pandemic is shining a bright light on our broken for-profit healthcare system, we were already le- leaving nearly half of all adults under the age of 65 underinsured or underinsured before the COVID-19 hit. And we were cruelly doing so while paying more per capita for healthcare than any other country in the world, said Congresswoman Jayapal. Quote, there is a solution to this health crisis, a popular one that guarantees healthcare to every person as a human right and finally puts people over profit and care over corporations. That solution is Medicare for all, everyone in, nobody out, and I am proud to introduce it today alongside a powerful movement across America. Quote, a system that prioritizes profits over patients and ties coverage to employment was no match for a global pandemic and will never meet the needs of our people, said Congresswoman Dingell. Quote, in the wealthiest nation on earth, patients should not be launching GoFundMe pages to afford life-saving health care for themselves or their loved ones. Medicare for all will build an exclusive, inclusive health care system that won't just open the door to care for millions of our neighbors, but do it more efficiently and effectively than the ones we have today. Now is not the time to shy away from these generational fights. It is the time for action. 
so I mean, this is basically, you know, the Medicare for All Act, you know, yeah, I mean, obviously this is, this is not going to go anywhere because, as I said, nothing's changing. These Democrats are not serious about addressing our underlying problems. And, yeah, come the midterms, I'm probably not going to vote for any Democrats. I'm probably not going to vote at all because I really don't care about this anymore because, what the fuck? Anyway, uh, you know, again, this this show isn't necessarily for political action because, like, I've tried to be a little activist and all that, but that, that really creates a target for yourself and you get a lot of eyes on you, which it's not that I don't want attention. It's just, like, you get attention and you get people who are behind you and support you, but then you also get rivals and people who just want to say mean things about you and, you know, spread lies or... It, you know, it's very Machiavellian, and I've come to realize that, like, I really don't want to be involved in, like, any kind of, like, political, like, Game of Thrones kind of situation where I have to, like, make deals and such, and yeah, man, I've been watching a lot of, a lot of Rome recently, and I'm just like, I would not have survived. <laughs> if if I was in the Senate, I would not have survived at all, you know, you look at uh, Tiberius Gracchus, right? in his little stand against the Senate, and they just killed him. So, yeah, the last thing I want to do is be making this podcast causing a ruckus and then, you know, having a suicide by two bullets to the head, you know? So, yeah. But, you know, this, of course, the Pramila Jayapal, like, just introducing, you know, this healthcare act is not going to go anywhere. And again, you know, when I was talking about force to vote, that was it. And we, we, we dropped it. We, yeah. So I don't know. I really don't know. Don't care. Cause you guys fucked this up. You got distracted with Jimmy Dore instead of, you know, looking at what he was saying and actually trying to like make the strategy work. But now we have no leverage. And the, you know, the establishment who takes the money from all these lobbies, these insurance lobbies, they're not serious about actually addressing this problem. And they have their Medicare for all. And, you know, one comment I also want to make is about the people who were against, you know, this actual forced to vote issue. Those are the people that could afford to wait. Like, they, they can afford to wait because they don't have to worry about their immediate bills and such. So they're telling us, you know, hey, like, this is not the time. All right. You need to wait. I'm not going to suffer, but you need to wait. Meanwhile, you know, my mother is having all these health problems, which I know I'm now I have to fucking take care of this. I mean, you know, once I open up completely about having to drop out, like my life is going to turn upside down and it's going to light on fire, especially when it comes to the relationship with my family. Like I'm really trying to drag out the minutes and the seconds on this reveal because it's going to be a shit hits the fan situation for me personally. And primarily it has a lot to do with health insurance. That's the underlying main issue is how are you going to get health insurance? You're going to be 26. Like how? That's a really, man, that's, that seems like we should fix that, huh? That That's a really big problem. But instead you would rather target myself, somebody who is ultimately powerless over anything. Like I'm a nobody. I'm nobody. And, you know, you get this derision and target because it's easier to target me than to actually target the people who are responsible for everything that's fucked up. So, again, uh, 
I, I am getting distracted. I just have a lot to say because it's been a while since I've recorded. But, you know, when I'm doing this program and this podcast, I'm naturally going to have to live a bit of a rebellious lifestyle. Like, I guess I haven't seen Rebel Without a Cause, but, you know, I do have an underlying cause, but, you know, it's just misunderstood because people have their head up their asses, you know? And I definitely don't want to sound like the just, you know, grumpy and everything sucks and all. I don't want to sound like that at all, but it's just, you know, you, you need somebody like me to, you know, to set things straight, I guess. I, I don't know. I'm usually the one who's always explaining everything in my immediate social circle. So that's why I do this podcast. So I, at least I can get all that stuff out of my chest and I can focus on like, man, you see on the game last night? Even though I don't watch sports, but yeah. So again, that was a bit of a tangent, but I want to continue on because, you know, it's just, this was just a, it's like a wet sock. Like they just threw it like, hey, here you go. Like it's too late, man. (laughs) It's too late. Anyway, at least we have this sliver of good news in New York City. So New York City has now legalized marijuana. And I'm actually reading from um, Vice News, considering Japanese citizens living in New York where the government has uh, said, you know, to abstain from it, don't smoke. On March 31st, New York became the 15th state to legalize recreational marijuana. Parts of the law were effective immediately, allowing anyone over the age of 21 to smoke pot in designated areas and carry up to 3 ounces of weed or up to 24 grams of concentrated cannabis. Uh, for weed users and advocates, passage of this law was widely ce- celebrated. It paves the path for homegrown cannabis plants, weed cafes, and potentially fewer high-strung New Yorkers. That's for sure. I, it's going to be awesome on the subway. <laughs> um, but for s- Japanese citizens living in New York, laws on the other side of the world could give them pause before lighting up. Just hours after the legislation, the Consulate General of Japan in New York issued a warning that Japanese citizens and tourists who smoked weed in the state could still be punished under Japan's anti-cannabis law. Quote, never touch cannabis, even if it's illegal in the country or region you're currently visiting or living in, the mission said in a statement. The foreign ministry in Japan had also urged citizens living in New York or New Jersey, another state that recently legalized recreational cannabis, to abstain from the drug. Though Japan's anti-cannabis laws do not ban smoking, possession could land one up to five years in jail. The country is known to have some of the harshest laws on weed, despite the relatively low number of users. Only 1.8% of the population has smoked at least once in their lifetime, according to recent data. Only 1.8% of the population has smoked at least once in their lifetime, although recent data shows an upward trend in weed users. In 2020, 5,034 People were arrested over cannabis-related crimes in Japan, the highest on an official police record. Um, and, you know, I don't want to go too long into this, but they they talk about just underlying issues in Japanese society where it's not necessarily uh, addressed, you know, addiction and drug problems. Here we go. Yeah, so I'm reading this quote from an expat living in, or at least a dual citizen living in New York. So Mia Arai, a Japanese-American dual citizen in New York, said that if this was the Japanese government attempt to decriminalize drugs or have rehabilitation centers for drug addicts, the warnings would make sense. 
Quote, but the last time I was there, I don't remember seeing or even hearing about any recovery centers, so I'm not confident that that's what their objective is, she said. Quote, also Japan, from my experience, is a really hush-hush country, so I'm also not surprised that they don't have that many or make it known that there are drug recovery centers, considering they barely advertise their therapists or other taboo doctors and services. I'm reading from another student, actually, of so Matsui said, uh, quote, my business as an American Japanese citizen shouldn't be of concern to them or for me since weed is finally legalized here and they can't tell me nothing about how I should feel about marijuana. It's none of their business. So it would be wild if like, because, you know, when you do your visa, you, they, they, they show like which airport you're in. It would be wild if like they drug test you, if they see that you're in work. That would be crazy. So we'll have to see about that. But yeah, you know, I mean, it's good at least that marijuana is legal. I mean, I remember smoking on the corner with my cousins on New Year's night. I'm just like, is this safe? So now, you know, this is going to be nice at least to, you know, go to the Bronx and then, you know, people are going to be more chilled out. Like this could be really like good for like crime and stuff or in decrease of crime. Certainly, I mean, obviously, right? Because no longer getting uh, slapped for a drug possession. And they showed statistics like 94% of people who are arrested, especially with the stop and frisk that they recently uh, you know, done away with, even after they had done away with it, they were still stop and frisk. But like, it, yeah, man, like it was obviously targeting people of color and now they're doing away with that. Although we could see about like opioids and narcotics, how they're going to treat that. Um, but yeah, although I have been reading that many are, uh, suspecting that this, you know, uh, this legalization of marijuana in the state has a lot to do with, uh, Andrew Cuomo's, uh, scandal considering, um, sexual misconduct, right? So yeah, it, it could just very well be like a distraction where people are like, Hey man, you suck. Oh, okay. Well, here's a you know, free pot. Please leave me alone. So, yeah. So at least we have that going for us. And New York City now, I'm definitely going to be looking forward to the next visit. And yeah, that's uh, what we have going on there. Sucks for those Japanese citizens, though. Uh, you know, hope that they don't, you know, get serious about drug testing on return visitors. But anyway, so we have that drug legalization on the state level. When we should be getting it on the federal level, which is not something that this administration is prioritizing. Instead, they're more prioritizing addressing gun violence. And, you know, this is definitely um, a hot topic because we've had recently now with everything opening up again, the shootings are back. This, oh, great. So we had the shooting in Bolt. I mean, there's so many that happened in the last month. It's crazy. So I'm, I'm not going to just try to look over it but yeah we had the mass shooting of the asian women in atlanta and we had a mass shooting in the grocery store in boulder um yeah but anyway you know so in the face of all this and of course with this administration we're going to definitely see more and more uh, mass shootings i mean definitely we could see like a terrorist attack of like some QAnon radicals you know attacking a spot i mean like it could be like we're entering a new phase of domestic terrorism that's for certain 
But what's going to happen with that is the federal government is going to start to tighten the grip in terms of gun control and all that good stuff, which, you know, it's not that I'm like pro-gun and rah-rah, like we need those guns, but, you know, I understand the value of needing to protect your property and your livelihoods. And, you know, look, man, this country has had a history of race riots and lynchings. Like, you think I'm going to fucking give up my AR-15 in Texas? Are you fucking insane? Like, that's why I have it. Because I'm not going to wait for the police because they're, they're not going to protect me. Come on, man. Anyway, so the Justice Department has come out with new guidelines. Primarily, they're talking about ghost guns and red flag or national red flag law. So I'm just going to read through the all through the points. And I'm reading it from uh, the White House government uh, website. Uh, so first one, the Justice Department within 30 days will issue a proposed rule to help stop the proliferation of, quote, gun, ghost guns. We are experiencing a growing problem. Criminals are buying kits containing nearly all of the components and directions for finishing a firearm within at least uh, within as little as 30 minutes and using these firearms to commit crimes. When these firearms turn up at crime scenes, they often cannot be traced by law enforcement due to the lack of serial number. The Justice Department will issue a proposed rule to help stop proliferation of these firearms. Uh, next one, uh, the Justice Department within 60 days will issue a proposed rule to make clear when a device marketed as a stabilizing brace effectively turns a pistol into a short-barreled rifle subject to the requirements of the National Firearms Act. The alleged shooter in the Boulder tragedy last month appeared to have used a pistol with an arm brace, which can make a firearm more stable and accurate while still being concealed. The Justice Department, within 60 days, will publish a model red flag legislation for states. Red flag laws allow family members or law enforcement or to petition for a court order temporarily barring people in crisis from accessing firearms. If they present a danger to themselves or others, the president urges Congress to pass an appropriate national red flag law, as well as legislation incentivizing states to pass red flag laws of their own. In the interim, the Justice Department's published model legislation will make it easier for each state to want to adopt red flag laws to do so. Uh, the administration is investing in evidence-based community violence interventions. Community violence interventions are proven strategies for reducing gun violence in urban communities through tools other than incarceration. Because cities across the country are experiencing historic spike in homicides, the Biden-Harris administration is taking a number of steps to prioritize investment in community violence interventions. Uh, and they have three points. The American Jobs Plan proposes a $5 billion investment over eight years to support community violence intervention programs. A key part of community violence intervention strategies is to help connect individuals to job training and job opportunities. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services is organizing a webinar and toolkit to educate states on how they can use Medicaid to reimburse certain community violence intervention programs like hospital-based violence interventions. Five federal agencies are making changes to 26 different programs to direct vital support to community violence intervention programs as quickly as possible. These changes mean we can start increasing investments in community violence interventions as we wait on Congress to appropriate additional funds. Um, and then continuing on, the Justice Department will issue an annual report on Firearms trafficking in 2000, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms issued a report summarizing information regarding its investigations into firearms 
trafficking, which is one way firearms are diverted into the illegal market, where they can easily end up in the hands of dangerous individuals. Since the report's publication, states, local, and federal policymakers have relied on this data to better thwart the common channels of firearms trafficking, but there is a good reason to believe that firearms trafficking channels have changed since 2000, for example, due to the emergence of online sales and proliferations of ghost guns, the Justice Department will issue a new comprehensive report on firearms trafficking and annual updates necessary to give policymakers the information they need to help address firearms trafficking today. And lastly, the president will nominate David Chipman to serve as director of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. ATF is the key agency enforcing our gun laws and it needs a confirmed director in order to do the job to the best of its ability, but ATF has not had a confirmed director since 2015. Chipman served at ATF for 25 years and now works to advance common sense gun safety laws. So that is what they're proposing. I believe there's also like a gun rights case that's going on in the Supreme Court right now over the ability to conceal a firearm outside of the home. So there's that. But I did want to talk about this guy, Chipman, who's going to be the new ATF director. They said he's been serving for 25 years, but it comes to find out it has been revealed that he had a role in the Waco siege with the Branch Davidians. Yeah. So that's what that lets you know, you know, what exactly he's been involved in. I mean, I'm not, you know, it's not that I'm defending the, the Branch Davidians in the sense of like, because I don't usually you know, like religious cults, but like we, we've come to realize now that that whole siege was a fiasco and a violation of their constitutional rights and so on and so forth. And, you know, and this, uh, new guy is going to be the next, um, director of the ATF. And who knows what's going to happen after that. But, you know, I, I did want to say, you know, the whole, you know, attempt to, uh, stop the proliferation of ghost guns, right? Um, and the red flag laws and also this uh, short barrel rifle regulation. You know, it's it's always targeting this inanimate object, okay? It's a gun. It's a piece of metal. It's just, you know, if you leave it there, it's just going to sit there, right? You know, I, I did find that problem, like uh, that statement problematic. You know, guns don't kill people. People kill people. But there is some truth to it, though, because literally it's a piece of metal. It's just going to sit there. And yeah. So, you know, when I had all these problems, when I bought my guns, which is only two of them. It, it was like, I, I like, oh, OK, this is what really, this is what people think of me because I have never had any violent tendencies, never, never had any fights in school. I hated wrestling. I hated football. Like I tried to quit because I didn't like the aggressive attitudes there. And, you know, I've clearly demonstrated, you know, I mean, you know, fights as a kid, that's one thing. But then when you get older, like, it's different, you know, when you're just a naturally violent person, right? Which was not who I was, or who I still am. I'm not a violent person. But you get treated this way because, I guess, I'm just seclusive, right? Or you don't have that many friends. I mean, I have friends. I just don't need 500 of them, you know? Like... Yeah, man, people, they just, they don't know how to mind their own business. And this is why I have an issue with these red flag laws that they're going to try to make nationally. Because already, I bet people have already t uh, talked about me to somebody. 
yeah, man, people need to know their, you know, mind their business because, you know, I've tried to, because I try to be articulate when I say these things, but it's the, the subject matter is so outlandish and it's so, uh, doom and gloom that people just don't want to accept it and then they assume that i have a bigger plan or something i don't know man i just want to be left alone like i don't want to be alone and ignored but like i don't want people in my business you know like really like my dream is to like have land and like raise dogs or something like that like that would be idyllic but no instead i have to go to college and i have to go to an internship and work in some fucking corporate office or, you know, and anyway, I'm getting distracted because this is really about the gun laws here. And I, for whatever reason, I always make it about myself, but you know, I feel like I have to explain myself all the time, but yeah, the, so we have this ATF and this, uh, you know, gun rights, uh, these gun control measures, right? But what my underlying issue is about, you know, just this piece of metal, right? Is that, Violence in a lot of ways is linked with poverty and is linked with generational trauma, addiction, mental health problems. Like people, it, violence is inherently irrational unless you have like a war society or something like that. And then, you know, violence is only used when it's absolutely necessary under self-defense. But, you know, when you have issues like domestic violence, has a lot to do with financial instability, drug problems, mental health, gang violence, drug you know, drug war stuff. Again, a lot, lot to do with um, problems in the home. You know, very few economic opportunities outside of, you know, selling drugs or sometimes prostitution. Again, man, like it, it's poverty, man, that li that leads to all this. It's not to say that there aren't people who are want to inflict harm and pain. That is entirely different. Uh, a lot of that has to do still with mental health treatment and just identifying it early before it manifests into something monstrous so yeah man there's there's a lot of ways to address these uh, underlying violence issues in our society and making it hard to buy guns is not going to fix anything it's really not like the same with these police problems like convicting these officers is not going to fix the overarching problem yeah anyway you know like <laughs> They, like, people always talk about, oh, well, you always played these shooting games growing up. Yeah, well, hey, I pl I also played The Sims, and I don't have a house or family of my own. So, you know, it's just a game, man. <laughs> so, oh, my goodness. Anyway, so, with that being said, that's what I want to talk about, at least with this gun issue or gun control problems. And now it's going to get really weird. These next two articles I'm going to talk about. Both in political, and the first one is considering the the Matt Guyatt's, uh pedo scandal. I mean, this is something like this guy is like one of like the like the QAnon guys in Congress, and he is like the fucking creep pedo. I mean, looking at this guy, he's clearly inbred. Like you, you look at some people, and you're like. This person's inbred, and Matt Gaetz is one of them. This guy's obviously inbred, because there's no way there's somebody that's that naturally ugly. And then also you look at his personality and the, the work that he does, and my goodness, like there's just some people who are just born in a, just wrong. 
and for whatever reason they gain power they they have the wrong wiring in their head but they're born into positions of wealth and power that they can just coast through life and they can think that they can get away with this shit so anyway they're reading from political right um quote and it's from miami the, the group took off for their bahamas weekend getaway on three separate flights most of the passengers were, which included at least five young women, flew out of Orlando on two separate private planes. Matt Guyatt's flew commercial. The details, the details of that flight, of that September 2018 trip, the details of that September 28 trip are sparse, but they are critical to the allegations against Guyatt's, the Florida congressman currently the subject of a federal sex crime investigation that is threatening his career. Guyatt's, who has not been charged, has consistently denied the two anonymous claims against him that he had sex with a 17-year-old girl and paid for sex. Matt Geitz's predicament as the subject of a serious investigation became clearer this weekend when federal agents executed a search warrant and seized his iPhone, according to interviews with three people who were told of the matter by Geitz, who changed his phone number in late December. Around that time, the sources said Federal Angels also seized his former girlfriend's phone before she went into work in the morning. She declined comment. She declined to comment. At the time of the 2018 trip, Guyatz was a top advisor to Republican Ron DeSantis, who was running for governor, and went on to manage his transition team months later. DeSantis has long been a top Guyatz ally, but declined to comment on his legal woes Monday when asked by reporters. In the Bahamas, Guyatz was joined by two GOP allies, Halsey Bashars, then a state legislator, and John Pirozolo, a hand surgeon and Republican fundraiser for DeSantis, according to three sources, including one who was part of the group. Also among those on the trip, the former minor who is key to the investigation, whose presence on the trip was previously unreported, according to one of the women in the group who spoke on condition of anonymity, Everyone on the trip was over the age of 18, including the women in question who had turned 18 years old months before the trip, she said. Political, or, the woman was born in December 1999, according to a personal website, but Political has been unable to confirm the woman's official date of birth. No one on the trip engaged in prostitution, the source said, but questions surrounding the ages of some of the women surfaced immediately upon their return. Three of them looked so young when they returned to Bashar's or Bashir's private plane, the U.S. Customs briefly stopped and questioned him, according to sources familiar with the trip, including a woman on the flight. As the investigation intensified this winter, Bashir's abruptly resigned as Florida Department of Business and Professional Regulation Secretary, a post that made him the state's top business regulator, noting he had contracted COVID-19, but he confided to two friends recently that he believes he is the subject of the investigation, the friends told Politico. Bashir's refused comment, and his lawyer did not return calls. Both the lawmaker and his former girlfriend declined to comment. Conspicuously absent from the 2018 Bahamas trip was another official in their circle, former Seminole County tax collector Joel Greenberg, whose alleged criminal conduct sparked the wide-ranging investigation. Indicted last August for sex trafficking the underage girl in question, federal authorities say occurred between May and November 2017. Greenberg is currently in jail and reportedly contemplating a deal with federal prosecutors as he faces 33 charges including federal stalking and a host of financial crimes. 
In July 2020, as the full scope of his legal troubles were coming into view, Greenberg made a failed attempt to get politically connected friends to ask Gaetz to get President Donald Trump to pardon him, two of the friends told Politico. Greenberg was not invited to the Bahamas, the three, the three sources said, because of a conflict with Pirozolo's girlfriend, Pirozolo's, who recently told patients that his office was closed due to family emergency, could not be reached for comment, nor could his lawyer or girlfriend. The women whose age is in question also declined to comment on the case, in which investigators are also examining whether sex was explicitly exchanged for drugs or money. Political is withholding her name because she is the alleged victim of a sex crime. Before his indictment for sex trafficking the underage girl, Greenberg told a mutual friend in August 14th WhatsApp chat last year that federal agents sought to speak to her, but she was unwilling. So let me continue on. But this is pretty wild. I mean, it just goes to show like it, people in positions of power are just depraved and maniacs and predators. Um, yeah, man, this is just... Um, yeah, something else. But I'm going to at least uh, wrap up the last paragraph because they talk about the, the gray area of the situation, whether or not this is like a sugar daddy thing or prostitution, sex trafficking, human trafficking, right? Uh, so Lawrence Walters, a First Amendment lawyer in Orlando who has represented sugar daddy websites and clients accused of prostitution, said prostitution in such cases can be difficult. Quote, Every type of dating relationship has an exchange of value. It's largely why law enforcement hasn't wanted to weigh into these sugar daddy type relationships area because of that tremendous gray area, Walter said. Noting the distinction between dating and exchange of value in a relationship versus all-out commercial prostitution, we don't have a lot of court rulings on that. Prosecutors tend to focus on very clear cases so they don't get into these issues. But if they wanted to pursue sugar daddy type relationships, dating relationships, there are very thorny personal, societal, and constitutional issues that they have to deal with. So, yeah, that's I guess that's the defense that they're going to go with. Like, they're of age. Like, they have to sort that first. And then they have to, you know, make it like, oh, it was a consensual deal. And, like, yeah, we look at the sugar daddy situation. And, you know, again, personally, I think sex work should just be, you know, whatever, like, Honestly, like, you know how many times where I could have been like, I should just hit a brothel up. But, you know, of course, that's not available. So I would have to get some girl off the street, which is not not something that I've ever done. And nor do I want to do that because it's not safe, obviously. You know, anyway, you know, with this situation, right, with um, sex trafficking of a minor, 17-year-old across state lines, or, you know, they're saying that he could go, you know, for the rest of his life, really. Yeah. Man, and it's so. And then you know, I was watching one of uh, Hassan's streams, and he was just going through uh, guys' Twitter, and he posts a lot with young girls, especially. You know, so this is not. Yeah, this does not look good. It's it's so gross, man. I don't. Ugh. Oh my god, it's just gross, man. There's kids, man. Like I don't understand how anybody can sexualize that. Jesus Christ. It's like. They're, they're gross, man. Like, come on. Like, you have a fully developed woman. Usually a lot of these, like, predator guys, they just can't get, a, they can't deal with women their own age. So they have to fucking go after young girls, impressionable girls, because they're, you know, the young girls, all they see is the money and the power and the, you know, the maturity, quote unquote maturity. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. It's, 
It's exploitative and predatory, obviously. This is still something that's under investigation, but he is fighting it. He's really fighting it. And he's... I, I who, who, the, who in the world is a Matt, Matt guy at Stan? Like, who? Who? <laughs> wow, man. And then they also had him speaking at a woman's first uh, conservative rally. Oh, my goodness. I hate everything so much. Man, this is truly hell world. Man, but that's at least what's happening for now. But I think that he, I think he could seriously get it and get clapped because, like, the FBI, like, Marshal Services, like, they do not mess around with that. That's pretty universal, you know. That's at, at least something that we can all agree on. Like, that's pretty heinous. And he has to go. But you're dealing with somebody in a position of power. And, you know, we also have the Ghislaine Maxwell. Like, that. that is also under investigation and still continuing. Like, it, it's insane, the level of sex, sex trafficking. It's insane. And it's, like, the worst it's ever been. That's what you have to realize a lot with these, like, underground, like, black market, like, sort of deals. Like, it's... This is the worst that it's ever been in terms of like slavery, sex trafficking, human trafficking, the worst. And, you know, and we have to fight it. We just have to keep fighting it because evil just rears its ugly head for whatever reason, primarily for financial gain. So, so continuing on. So that's what I wanted to talk about with this Guyet scandal, this sex trafficking scandal. But then um, something a bit interesting happened. And it was concerning Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, our girl, you know, QAnon. Yeah, they are proposing a uh, white American congressional caucus, uniquely Anglo-Saxon values or whatever the fuck. Like, it's, Jesus, man. Right. So, um, so reading from Politico, uh, reports that representatives Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gozar, or Marjorie Taylor Greene is from Georgia, and Paul Gozar is Arizona. Um, are planning to launch a House caucus based on, quote, uniquely Anglo-Saxon, read, white people, traditions as GOP leaders and Democrats protesting the embrace of blatant racism by some in the chamber. All eyes are on House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy, who last night tweeted his disapproval of the proposed new group, but who will no doubt be called on to do more to stop it entirely. Framing their new organization around Trump, MTG and Gozar plan to call their group the America First Caucus. Documents first reported on by Punchbowl News show that the caucus would prioritize a return to an architectural style that befits the progeny of European architecture. From the document, quote, history has shown that societal trust and political unity are threatened when foreign citizens are imported en masse into a country particularly without institutional support for assimilation and expansive welfare state to bail them out should they fail to contribute positively to the country. I mean, that I mean, that is insane that I'm reading that right now. And this is coming from a, a congressional caucus. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so what will McCarthy do? And he is currently the GOP leader, House GOP leader. McCarthy uh, tweeted his disapproval on Friday without naming names. America is built on the idea that we're all created equal and success is earned through honest hard work. It isn't built on identity, race, or religion. The Republican Party is a party of Lincoln and the party of more opportunity for all Americans, not nativist dog whistles. So, you know, at least the leadership is 
pushing back on this, but honestly, like it's more like performative. Like I don't think that he's actually serious about that. But yeah, man, Anglo-Saxon. But here's the thing about these white nationalists, okay? Because you know they they have zero understanding of like any kind of like ethnography, ethnography, right, or history. Because again, as I said, you know, I, I love classical antiquity and the Roman periods. But what I also like about it is that in that period, like they didn't care if you were a Gaul, if you were a German, or if you were a Scythian or whatever. They didn't care so long as you you fought for the glory of Rome, Roma Invicta. Like <laughs> they they didn't care. So like as long as you're you know loyal, I'm sure there was some like barbarian anti-barbarian sentiments racially but you know so long as you are willing to fight and die for rome that's all that mattered and i guess it's the same that applies for today but yeah man it, you know but like what i mean to say about you know that period is that like people you know they identify with their immediate culture and their tribe and it wasn't just a white thing so like you, you see in america they're saying like Anglo-Saxon values, but then the, the Italians are probably like, wait a second, like what about us? And the Irish are like, hold up, like, but you're not going to see that at all. That's not going to happen. And it just really shows how ignorant these white power and white supremacist people are because they completely like just ignore all the bigotry and hatreds of different quote unquote white peoples. But then they come to America and they have to deal with the Indians or Native Americans, I should say, and Indians from India black people uh just like mexicans they, and they have to deal with all these other people so they're like oh shit uh we shouldn't hold on to the anti-italian views because we need more whites you're in our group now like it's just it's useless it's pointless really yeah anyway don't want to get too distracted there but you know i this is why i don't usually like the topic of race politics although it's it's is inescapable and it's unavoidable, obviously. And of course, I'm going to impart my views on it. It's just, you know, I'm multiracial. So like you kind of like pull from all these different places. And then of course you have, you know, the Dominicans that are like, I'm not black or like, uh, my goodness. Can we all just get along, man? Like, you know, it, it's different in the case of like a black caucus because they have been historically disenfranchised. It's different. But then we have an Anglo-Saxon America First caucus. It's like, this is purely white supremacy. That's all it is. And I mean, it's in incredibly insane just how close we are to sliding towards a, you know, neo-Nazi fascist dictatorship. Like, it's so easy. It's so easy. Oh, my goodness. You know, like, I've just recently discovered uh, people like uh, Gypsy Crusader. <laughs> you know, and of course, his views are abhorrent, and I don't endorse him at all but you know it's one of those characters that you just can't look away from like holy shit like this guy is actually the joker <laughs> um yeah and you know he got arrested obviously that's mainly what i heard about him but when he gets out it's gonna get there's gonna be some serious traction man who knows I might write a book my comp <laughs> but um yeah wow man anyway I just wanted to read about that, and they also provided a document of this America First caucus. So I just wanted to read at least their uh, main points, right? So their main ones are election fraud, of course, uh, sovereignty, big tech, immigration, infrastructure, foreign aid, national security, 
coronavirus, trade, the environment, like conservatives give a fuck about the environment, energy, protecting the value of American savings, America first education, and then their last but not least, the Chinese Communist Party. They're coming for us. Um, yeah, so those are points. It's like a seven-page you know, policy platform, I guess, their manifesto. Yeah, but that's really what they're um, focusing. That's just something to ignore. So that's what I wanted to speak on uh, with our domestic situation. You know, of course, I took a lot of time getting this episode up, so there's plenty that I've missed up on. But, hey, you know, there's just a lot that's been happening. But there's also a lot that's happened outside of the United States because, you know, there's a whole planet. There's not, you know, it's not just the United States. So, yeah, so firstly, I wanted to talk about probably one of the bigger, like, economic stories of the last month. And that was the uh, Swiss Canal blockage, uh, the Ever Given. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that pretty much put everything to a halt. Um, yeah, man. But what has occurred is that, you know, the costs were so great that Egypt, the Egyptian government has impounded the ship. So, yeah, so that's happening there, right? So, uh, reading from BBC, Egypt will impound the giant container ship that blocked the Suez Canal last month until its Japanese owners pay $900 million, uh, in compensation. One of the Ever Given's insurers, UK Club, said the Suez Canal Authority had rejected its offers to settle the claim. It described the claim, which includes $300 million for salvage for a salvage bonus, and $300 million for loss of reputation as, quote, extraordinarily large and, quote, largely unsupported. The Ever Given is anchored in the Great Bitter Lake, the canal's midway point. The 400-meter-long, 220,000-ton ship became wedged diagonally across the waterway on the 23rd of March after running aground amid high winds and a sandstorm that affected visibility. It was freed six days later after a salvage operation involving a flotilla of powerful tugboats and dredging vessels had shifted an estimated 30,000 cubic meters of mud and sand. More than 400 vessels had to wait to pass through the 193-kilometer canal, which connects the Mediterranean Sea to the Red Sea and provides the shortest sea link between Asia and Europe. The chairman of the Suez Canal Authority, Osama Rabi, said on Tuesday that the Ever Given has been, quote, seized due to its failure to pay $900 million in compensation. The Egyptian state media reported, quote, the figure was based on the, quote, loss incurred by the grounded vessel as well as the flotation and maintenance costs, he added. UK, UK Club, which insured the ship's owner, Sohei Kassin Kaisha, for third-party liabilities, including damage caused to infrastructure or claims for obstruction, said in a statement that it had been negotiating in good faith with the SCA despite the magnitude of the claim. Quote, on Monday, a carefully considered and generous offer was made to the SCA to settle their claim. It added, we are disappointed by the SCA's subsequent decision to arrest the vessel. We are also disappointed at comments by the SCA that the ship will be held in Egypt until the compensation is paid and that her crew will be unable to leave the vessel during this time. UK Club said the SCA had not provided a detailed justification for its claim, noting that the grounding resulted in no pollution and no reported injuries. 
and also said the claim did not include the fees of the specialist salvage company brought in to help refloat the ever given, which the owner and another insurer expected to pay separately. Spokeswoman for Sohei Kasan Kashai, Kaisha, confirmed to agency fronts press that the ever given fate was in the legal arena. So yeah, there's a bit of a legal battle happening with this ship. And uh, I mean, it's pretty interesting how just like one little, I mean, it's not a little accident. I mean, it's a pretty big thing that happened, but just one ship, you know, clogged the canal and then the whole world economy is in haywire. Luckily, they sorted it out. But yeah, uh, no, that's just what happened there. But it was just interesting to see how like everybody was going, you know, uh, past the uh, the Cape of Africa. Yeah. Very interesting. But hey, we uh that has passed now and we'll just see how trade and other uh movement of resources and goods are, you know, how that continues, right? Cuz I mean, it took a huge effect, a huge hit uh, during this coronavirus pandemic epidemic. Come here. I'm holding my cat. If you can't you can't really see it, but uh yeah, it's uh Pretty severe, pretty severe thing that happened, but that's passed now, and so we're just uh, going to continue on. Right, so that was in the Suez. We also have military movements that have also been occurring concerning the Ukraine. As of now, though, the troops have you know backed off from the border, but this doesn't. Uh, this is not the end of these uh, tensions between Ukraine and Russia. So I'm reading from the Associated Press. The European Union's foreign policy chief said Monday that in the face of the big military buildup of Russian troops near Ukraine's border, it will only take a spark to set off the confrontation. In a glum assessment of relations with Moscow, Joseph Borrell also said that the condition of imprisoned Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny was critical and that the 27-nation group would hold the Kremlin accountable for his health and safety. Despite the developments, Burrell said after a virtual meeting of the EU foreign ministers that, quote, for the time being, there's no move in the field of more sanctions to be imposed on Russia. He also said there wasn't a request for a synchronized EU diplomatic move of expulsions in the standoff between the Czech Republic, an EU member state, and Russia following Prague's accusation that Moscow was involved in a 2014 ammunition depot explosion. More dangerous at this time, Burrell said was the massing of Russian troops, including military field hospitals and, quote, all kinds of warfare. It is the highest military deployment of the Russian army on the Ukrainian borders ever. It's clear that it's a matter of concern when you deploy a lot of troops, Burrell said, while well, a spark can jump here or there. Initially, Burrell told reporters that, quote, there are more than 150,000 Russian troops massing on the Ukrainian border and in Crimea, and doubled down on the figure later before his services had to correct it in a transcript, saying the real figure was over 100,000. Nevertheless, Burrell said that the risk for further escalation is evident. Uh, Burrell declined to say where he got the initial 150,000 troop number, but called it my reference figure. It was higher than the 110,000 estimate provided by Ukrainian Defense Minister Andriy Taran on Wednesday. Uh, more than 14,000 people have died in seven years of fighting between Ukrainian forces and Russia-backed separatists in eastern Ukraine, 
that erupted after Russia's 2014 annexation of Ukraine's Crimean Peninsula. The EU has steadfastly opposed the annexation, but has been unable to do anything about it. Efforts to reach a political settlement have stalled, and violations of a shaky truce have become increasingly frequent in recent weeks across Ukraine's eastern industrial heartland known as the Donbass. Diplomats have expected there were there was little to no chance of immediate new sanctions on Moscow, but they will now seek to apply more pressure nevertheless through diplomacy. Moscow must switch from provocation to cooperation, German Foreign Minister Heiko Maas said, and over the weekend, French President Emmanuel Macron said that while dialogue with Russia is essential, quote, clear red lines carrying possible sanctions must also be drawn with Moscow over Ukraine. All in all, the relations with Russia are not improving, but contrary, the tension is increasing in different fronts, Burrell said. Uh, we can call on Russia to, to withdraw their troops, Burrell said. So yeah, so that's what's happening there, although they are starting to ease off there, but those tensions are certainly not going anywhere. And I can see those troops being moved around, say, to the Baltic states, right, Estonia, Lithuania, or, yeah, some other portion of the country. Um, but that's what's happening in, with the Ukraine, at least for now. Um, and then we have, they had said uh, about Alexei Navalny's health, and he is uh, dying. Essentially, he's gone on hunger strike. So, I mean, he went on hunger strike, but of course, they were certainly uh, targeting him and uh, mistreating him. Of course, it's like, you know, probably daily beatings or something, who knows. But I'm reading this from CNN. The Moscow prosecutor's office filed a lawsuit on Friday with Moscow City Court seeking to label jailed Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny's anti-corruption foundation known as FBK and his headquarters as extremist organizations. Meanwhile, Navalny supporters say that his medical condition is rapidly deteriorating. His press secretary said that Navalny was dying and his doctor said medical tests showed He's at growing risk of renal failure and heart problems. If approved, the move by prosecutors could have serious consequences for Navalny's team in Russia. In Russian law, extremist organizations can be banned and liquidated, and activists who continue to work with them possibly face prison terms of up to 10 years. Quote, Under the cover of liberal slogans, these organizations are engaged in creating conditions for the stabilization of the social and sociopolitical situation the prosecutor's office said in a statement on Friday. The statement added, the goals of the opposition organizations is to encourage color revolutions, a reference to popular uprisings in former Soviet republics, which Russia considers to have been supported by Western governments. The actual goals of their activities are to create conditions for changing the foundation of the constitutional system, including using the scenario of the color revolution. And yes, they're also saying how Navalny is on hunger strike. They say latest medical tests showed he has a growing risk of renal failure and heart problems. CNN is not able to independently verify the state of Navalny's health. The letter shared on Twitter by a key Navalny ally and head of a prominent opposition doctor's union, Anastasia Vasilyeva, Vasilyeva said Navalny's doctors have serious concerns about his current health conditions. Quote, we urgently request to hold negotiations in an urgent medical concilium uh, with the medical workers of the medical unit number 33 to discuss the diagnostic tests carried out 
and the treatment to be prescribed, as well as to take the patient out of critical condition threatening a fatal outcome, a copy of the letter showed by Vasilyeva said, quote, we asked to be admitted to the examination of our patient who has been observed for many years. Earlier this week, FSIN told CNN in a statement that Nalvani was treated April 5th through 9th in a medical unit in Penal Colony Number no. 2 in Polkrov, where he is in prison. The statement said Nalvani was transferred back to his prison squad due to an improvement of his health condition. Nalvani said in a post of his Nalvani said in a post on his official Instagram account on Friday that he has been threatened with force feeding as he continues his hunger strike. Nalvani said Friday that his blood test results show his health is deteriorating. He has been diagnosed with two hernias and is losing feeling in both hands, one of his lawyers, Olga Mikhailova said in an interview with Russian media last week. He is on a hunger strike in protest of prison officials refusing to grant him access to proper medical care. The Kremlin said this week that it would not give him special treatment. So that's really what's happening there. I mean, they're also labeling his group an organization, an extremist organization. So they're certainly cracking down on that. So, yeah, I mean, you know, Putin is a czar and he's going to, czar is going to czar. It's just, uh, yeah, unfortunate for him. I mean, he's certainly brave in sacrificing everything, literally everything, his whole body and that. Although, you know, I've come to find more about his uh, personal, like, sociopolitical views. You know, he's more of a nationalist. So, yeah. But, I mean, you know, he's standing up to corruption and authoritarianism from uh, Putin. And that's certainly a good thing. So, yeah, man, you know, props to him for what he's doing. I certainly wouldn't sacrifice myself like that, honestly, <laughs> really. Uh, but, yeah, man, you know, it's different, I guess. Because, you know, we talk about the problems in our government, right? But then you look at places like China and Russia where they don't pretend that you have any rights. So, yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's what's happening there. And uh, I wanted to continue on with some uh, just Chinese military movements that have been occurring, especially with Taiwan. So there have been some incursions into their airspace and Taiwan's basically saying that they are willing to fight to the end. You know, I mean, an invasion of Taiwan for China could really like make or break everything, really, because they could invest their entire navy into this one island and they could be devastated, really. But then again, that would that also depends if the United States is uh, willing to intervene. I don't know, man. I mean, Taiwan could seriously start off World War Three, really. So, yeah. So, reading from uh, Business Insider, right? So, a senior Taiwanese official warned Wednesday that the self-ruled island will fight to the very last day in a conflict with China, which has increased its military activities nearby. We are willing to defend ourselves. That's without any question. Taiwanese Foreign Minister Joseph Wu said, according to the AP, we will fight a war if we need to fight a war, and if we need to defend ourselves to the very last day, then we will defend ourselves to the very last day. The Chinese military sent an aircraft carrier group led by the Liaoning to drill in waters near Taiwan on Monday to strengthen the Chinese Navy's capabilities to safeguard national sovereignty, security, and development interests, the Chinese Ministry of National Defense said. The spokesperson said that such exercises will continue and happen regularly. Also on Monday, 
10 Chinese military aircraft, including four J-10 and four J-16 fighter jets, a Y-8 anti-submarine warfare aircraft, and a KJ-500 early warning plane. Enter Taiwan's air defense identification zone, CNN reported. Commenting on Monday aerial incursions and carrier drill, Shi Hong, the executive chief editor of the Chinese magazine Shipborne Weapons, told the Chinese state-affiliated Global Times that the, quote, the exercises showed that the PLA is capable of surrounding the island of Taiwan. She added that the drill sent a deterrent message to not only Taiwan, but foreign forces, such as the U.S. and its allies, that might take action to support Taiwan in a contingency. The U.S. considers the autonomous democratic island to be a partner, often criticizing Chinese efforts to pressure or intimidate Taiwan, and has long supported its defense primarily through armed cells. Chinese military aircraft flights near Taiwan have become regular occurrences. Taiwan's defense ministry said Wednesday that 15 Chinese aircraft, including 12 fighter jets, entered the ADIZ, according to Reuters. Taiwan responds to these frequent, almost daily incursions by scrambling its own fighters to intercept the Chinese aircraft. Experts say there are multiple explanations for China's military activities around Taiwan. Quote, I view it as both a military demonstration of the PLA's prowess and a political statement about what Chinese leaders regard as their position on Taiwan's autonomy, Rand Corporation senior international defense researcher Timothy Heath said. He explained that such activities also send a domestic political message that Chinese leaders still take the goal of unification seriously. Then there is the training aspect of Chinese military China's then there is the training aspect of China's military moves. He said these exercises do not appear to be, quote, a prelude to a coming operation, but they are practicing. China's military moves near Taiwan come as some U.S. military leaders have raised concerns that China might opt to forcefully seize control of the island in the not-too-distant future. Right. And the article continues on with um, naval efforts, U.S. naval efforts, um, creating a Indo-Pacific coalition, and you know certainly with Japan, South Korea, uh, Taiwan, Philippines, Vietnam, even. So yeah, that's what's happening there. At least you know it's uh, it's still tense. I mean, I can't even imagine. You know, you're you're living in the United States, so you don't immediately have to worry about an invasion. You know, I mean, still, I mean, like. You know, so when you're living in a place like Taiwan, a small little island, you know, even though they might have state-of-the-art equipment, it's still daunting to have the full weight of the Chinese military and communist totalitarian party just weighing on you and you know, looking at you like a like a, a raw steak, right? Like they're you know a tiger and there's a raw steak on a dinner plate. That's Taiwan, and they just want to eat it up. I mean. Yeah, man, China's going to be a problem, for real. And it's just so fascinating to me now that this is such an ancient and advanced civilization, and now they've truly entered the world stage for the worst possible reason. It's just, oh, my goodness, man. Oh, yeah. So, there's that. You know, we just keep an eye on there. But we have that happening, right, with China. But then there's also more military moves and... You know, I was going to mention this in a domestic article, but this is kind of more uh, related with international relations, geopolitics, and it's concerning the 
withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan. And it's interesting that you're seeing a lot of leftists and so-called liberals. I'm sorry, I was playing with my cat and she almost ripped my arm off. <laughs> right, so you have a lot of like uh, liberals, leftists, and blue checkmark Democrats now saying, well, maybe this isn't the right time to withdraw. I mean, this is the longest war in our history, um, but we can't withdraw just yet. Even though there's really no like clear goal of victory. We're just, it's just madness. I mean, like, seriously, like, it, it's unben... It, it's... Uh, I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm at a loss for words because... I still openly talk about how fucked up the Iraq war was. And people just have this attitude of like, oh, why are you bringing that up now? Like, what, excuse me? Like, like possibly the worst like war crime that we've ever committed. And you guys are going to treat me like the asshole? Excuse me? <laughs> anyway, but yeah, so we have this situation in Afghanistan. And, and talks of withdrawal. They want to do it before the September 11th anniversary. You know, like, got us into this mess. Um, but yeah, man. You know, which, I mean, it's not going to be a total withdrawal. And honestly, there's going to be, you know, private military contractors. So, really, it's going to be, like, mercenaries and, you know, other defense defense contractors occupying the land. It's basically just, like, Blackwater is, like, the new East India Company. If you can, you know, draw an analogy there. But yeah. Yeah. So, I'm reading from Financial Times. 20 years would seem more than enough time for America to achieve its goals in any theater of war. Yet in Afghanistan, the U.S. has continually found itself returning to square one. Joe Biden's decision last week to repatriate America's remaining 3,500 troops by September 11th, the 20th anniversary of the terror attacks, is thus good domestic politics. It has long been Biden's goal to wind down America's longest war. As vice president in 2009, he was the sole voice opposing Barack Obama's Afghanistan surge, which he believed was the was the result of a Pentagon squeeze on an inexperienced president. The conditions America's generals set for a drawdown always seem beyond realistic grasp. How can America clear and hold a country as unruly and friable as this graveyard of empires? The Pentagon's long-term mission seemed even less defensible. Following the killing of Osama bin Laden in 2011 and the near disappearance of Al-Qaeda's toehold in Afghanistan. Yet Biden is nevertheless taking a risk. Against the advice of his own intelligence community, which believes the Taliban could regain control of the country in two to three years, Biden is betting that the U.S. can diplomatically achieve from afar what it has failed to do on the ground. In Afghanistan, that will never again play host to international terrorist groups. Luck may go Biden's way. That would be in spite of Afghanistan's neighbors, which have little interest in shoring up Ashraf Ghani's ever-weakening grip on Kabul. Pakistan has never renounced its goal of achieving strategic depth in Afghanistan, which is a euphemism for the Taliban's return, nor is Iran likely to turn into a stabilizing force. The best thing that Biden has going for him is that the Taliban sees ISIS as a rival rather than its ally, while Al-Qaeda remains Quisson. Biden is signaling that return to Islamist government in Afghanistan may now be tolerable, while exporting terrorism remains taboo. But how can he know that one would not morph into the other? The answer is, the answer is that he cannot. Biden himself is aware of the risk. It was he in 2011 who took charge of America's final pullout from Iraq, 
Within two years, U.S. forces were sucked back into the region by the rapid spread of ISIS across Iraq and Syria. Then, as now, the temptation to proclaim an end to America's forever wars trumped the benefits of retaining a U.S. footprint to ensure against new deterioration. Yeah, so that's um, basically what they're running down there. I don't know. I mean, of course, people are going to be uh, iffy about the withdrawal and the pullout. It's just, uh, yeah, man. Who knows? I actually knew a guy that went to Afghanistan, so um, it is interesting to see now kids. You know, it, it's strange because like this happened. This war started when I was like five years old. So when it like I just visualized, you know, these great warriors, men going off to battle and fighting, and you know, Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, I'm looking and they're like, I'm thinking these guys are like my dad. You know, just fucking Rambo and you know Spartans. But then now. I'm in this stage where, I mean, if I had, it, if I really put my mind to it, I probably definitely would have joined the military if, you know, I wasn't politically active the way I am and also physically fit enough. But, you know, I'm still fighting age, right? And now I'm looking at like 18 year olds, fucking kids going in. I'm just sitting here like, what in God's name are we still doing? These fucking babies are dying, man. Like, anyway, you know, I, I don't want to seem like, I I mean, I don't want to come off as like a big brother type, but it's still like, you know, it's really a shame when you see young people wasted like that. For what? For what? Freedom? Like, there's still people that believe that this is about freedom. This is fucking, Jesus, man. Like, I I know plenty of people in the military and I, you know, I don't look at the uniform. I look at the person under it. So I have people who are great people, great human beings chivalrous honorable people which I mean you need that of course you need that but i don't think they fully understand what exactly they're fighting for so yeah man you know again it's really just up to you what you want to do if you want to do that sort of thing because i've i already got people telling me like what do you want to do with your life you drop out you're not gonna have any choices you're gonna join the military fuck what you're the military for no fuck that i'd rather be homeless than join the military straight Honest to God, I'd rather be homeless than be in the military. Even if I was doing some desk jockey logistics position. No, thank you. It's just fascinating to me that a big portion of the pushback for withdrawal is from the left and from these liberals who are supposed to be anti-war. And we should have never been there in the first place. That's really what their message should be. And I mean, soon enough, like if we ever do get into a conflict with Iran or something like that, like you're going to see some Democrats or you know, liberals, neoliberals trying to frame the war as, and you know, hey, we're bringing liberation and Western values to this theocratic regime that has oppressed women and gays. Like, you're going to see it, man. Like, so that's what they're doing right here. They're talking about women's rights and the, the steps that they've made, which honestly, like, it's still pretty, like, a lot of these patriarchal views are still going to be enforced. Like, they were still enforced with the United States in there, like, there were reports of, like, not even, like, girls, like, just young boys being, uh, feminized and raped by these warlords, and the military can do anything about it, like, so, yeah, man, like, what, yeah, it's just Vietnam and desert mountains, yeah, so anyway, so that's at least the, the pullout strategy that they have for, for Afghanistan, I also want to at least talk about 
more COVID related stuff. And uh, speaking specifically on India, which is going through a bit of a crisis right now with COVID, you know, oxygen shortages, uh, their, you know, mass diet and mass deaths. And they have these, uh, these mass cremation sites now, which, I mean, imagine the smell. I mean, it, I've talked to several people about their visits to India and like the first thing they tell you is the smell. So like it, this is a, I can't imagine what the smell is like right now. And also just the pollution and such, whatever. Like, yeah, geez, man. But um, yeah, they've just been experiencing this crisis right now and they're getting aid from around the world. But it just goes to show that this COVID uh, surge is continuing and it's continuing to mutate and it's it's not going away man it's not going away they, they even found the variant in um the brazos valley in texas so yeah i mean this is a yeah man it's just keep, it keeps keeps happening keeps keeps evolving keeps mutating so reading from cnn about this COVID crisis in india uh in february it seemed like india had gotten COVID 19 under control with daily cases falling nearly 90% from the peak of the first wave last year, now the country is experiencing the worst, the world's worst outbreak. Daily cases have been rising continuously for the past 10 days. On Monday, India reported 352,000 new cases, breaking yet another record for the highest single figure globally. On the ground, these numbers translate to heart-wrenching tragedy. The photos show grieving families dressed in full protective suits at mass uh, cremations, performing last rites surrounded by dozens of other burning funeral pyres. Hospitals have run out of basic medical supplies, with many patients dying due to oxygen shortages. Family members are driving from clinic to clinic, frantically searching for open ICU beds for their loved ones. The government has been scrambling to respond to the crisis, while countries around the world offering aid. But for now, the outbreak shows no sign of letting up and experts warn it could get even worse. I'm afraid that this is not the peak. Dr. Giridhara Babu of the Public Health Foundation of India on Monday, the kind of data that we see, we are at least two to three weeks away from the peak. Others say India may be approaching the peak now sooner than Babu's estimate, but with so many ill and so few supplies available, the country will see many other deaths, many more deaths before the second wave subsides. Uh, and then continuing onward, I just wanted to touch up on their vaccine efforts. Um, and they talked about how many doses they've just, uh, how many doses they dished out. Should look for it. Well, okay, I'm gonna read also about who's been affected, right? So they're talking about this wave, the second wave, and um, they're, talking about how uh, this is infecting younger people in this case, although they say that um, the median age of the population is 27, so it makes sense that young people would be affected, but the majority of deaths are still the elderly, the infirm, um, you know, immunocompromised, but still, I mean, it, this is a country of a billion people, so I mean, like, so th this could seriously cause some major unrest and they've already had problems with farmers protests. So this is only going to contribute to that. So what's happening with the vaccines, India is administrating two vaccines domestically, the Oxford, uh, AstraZeneca vaccine known as COVID shield in India 
and his homegrown Covaxin, developed jointly by Bharat Biotech and the government-run Indian Council of Medical Research, ICMR. In mid-April, India also approved Russia's Bucket 5 vaccine. The country started its vaccine program in January for healthcare workers and priority groups and marked its 100th day on April 25th with the goal of fully inoculating 300 million people by August, but the program had a sluggish start, facing logistical issues as well as vaccine hesitancy among the population, especially towards Covaxin, which was approved for emergency use before the efficacy data of its third phase trial was released, or were released. As of April 25th, India has administered 140.9 million doses of vaccines against COVID vaccine, according to the health ministry. So, take that for a minute. 140 million out of a billion. Like, wow, man. Like, India is a huge country, man. So, we're going to have to see what's going to unfold. Because as this outbreak was starting, I'm pretty sure many people worried about India. And, you know, they were pointing out with the the uh, first wave, they had a pretty low death count. I mean, it was lower than the U.S., for Christ's sake. But now it's starting to pick up. And, uh, yeah, it might get nasty. It might get pretty nasty. Yeah, that's what's happening there. And, of course, the government's having a response. The uh, U.S. is sending aid. Um... They are, uh, you know, they're rationing oxygen cylinders from industrial use so that they can use it for medical use. Yeah, I mean, this can get pretty bad. But that's in India, right? Which is a key strategic ally. And uh, their crisis that's going to continue to spiral because they say they're like two weeks away from the worst of it. So <laughs> that's uh, like a really nasty. So there's that, but then there's also the crisis within Brazil, which I think is also going underreported. Um, so they say um, that like the heads of the armed forces have resigned. Uh, people are still getting sick, and there's office like or, uh, medical supply shortages, food like it's it's a serious crisis, and this is Brazil. But yeah, um, uh, Brazil's Bolsonaro is facing the biggest crisis of his presidency after the heads of the Army, Navy, and Air Force all quit and the country recorded its highest daily de COVID death toll. The unprecedented resignation of defense chiefs is being seen as a protest at attempts by Bolsonaro to exert undue control over the military. Mr. Bolsonaro's popularity has plummeted over his response to COVID-19, nearly 314 thousand people have died with a new daily record of 3,780 on Tuesday. What's the situation with COVID? Worldwide, Brazil has the second highest number of total confirmed COVID cases with more than 12.6 million. Only the United States has more. Worldwide, Brazil has the second highest number of total confirmed COVID cases with more than 12.6. Only the United States has more. It is also the country with the second highest number of COVID-related deaths since the pandemic began and its daily deaths currently account for about a quarter of all the coronavirus fatalities in the world. Absolutely insane. Um, and here's a chart 
So countries with the most recorded deaths, of course, United States, USA, 550,000. Then Brazil, 313,000. Mexico, 200,000. 201,000. And India, 162,000. So we're going to see how that continues to grow. I, I In India, I would believe that that number is certainly higher uh, than that. But who knows? Um, but you know, with this current COVID crisis that India is experiencing, this is certainly going to pick up. Um, yeah. Oof, man. But yeah, Brazil is getting hit bad. And there's, a, there's just a new variant there. Um, yeah. The high number of cases has brought the health system to the verge of collapse. In 18 of Brazil's 26 states and in the capital, Brasilia, the occupancy of intensive care units is above 90%, according to the Brazilian Public Health Institute. In two states, Amapa, Mato Grosso do Sol, ICUs are completely full. Yeah. So, yeah, what's the result of the political fallout? Um, according to a poll published by Datafola, in mid-March, 43% of Brazilians blame President Bolsonaro for the poor handling of the pandemic. The, the far-right leader has consistently opposed lockdown measures, arguing that the damage of the country or the damage to the economy would be worse than the effects of the coronavirus itself. He has also told Brazilians to stop whining about the situation. Oh my God, this guy is fucking... Oh. Oh man, all the gaffes that he did. He's like, like if he were president of the United States, like this would be genuinely terrifying. Because at least Trump was just like a bumbling idiot. This guy is legitimately scary and dangerous. Not that Trump wasn't dangerous either, but you know, still, wow, man. Um, while his stance made him popular with anti-lockdown protesters. His popularity is falling. In a poll conducted in mid-March, 54% of respondents said his management of the COVID crisis was bad or very bad, up from 48%. In January, Bolsonaro was a divisive figure even before the pandemic hit, and the rapid spread of COVID seems to have further hardened opinions. Data follow-up polls suggest that while the percentage of those who said they never trusted the president's word rose from 41 to 45% between January and March, those who say they always trust what has only dropped slightly 19% to 18% in the same time frame. However, in recent days, the government has been further weakened by a deep political crisis. And they talk about the resignations of these, uh, the head of the armed forces. Um, you know, it has a lot to do with just Bolsonaro, like having positive opinions of the 1964 coup um, and military rule. I mean, imagine that, like, you have literal fascists in power who are reminiscing over a time when there was no democracy, <laughs> and, oh my goodness gracious, like, I just, I really am concerned for Brazil, I really am, I can see why there's a lot of Brazilians living here, but yeah, man, like, ugh. wow, I feel for y'all, really. But yeah, but Bolsonaro has his situation there. Who knows if they're close to civil war. But I mean, it's practically open war between the government and the gangs out there. So yeah, I mean, this country is just, it's just violence on another level, really. It's the Wild West. So that's there. And that's what I wanted to talk about with um, the international field. You know, kind of wrapped it up pretty quickly, I believe. But 
I wanted to finish up with uh, just natural segments and events around the world. And I wanted to speak on some volcanic activity in an area that doesn't usually experience eruptions, but I mean, it's not out of the question. It does happen with the St. Vincent in the Grenadines in the La Soufrière uh, volcano. And I'm reading from BBC and they're just explaining about this whole uh, situation, which is, you know, turning into a humanitarian crisis. Um, I feel like it's starting to be forgotten a bit, but there, this uh, eruption they're saying could last for weeks and months and already they're having water issues. So yeah, it's something to keep an eye on, but still fascinating to see, you know, this Caribbean idyllic island now just covered in ash and darkness. Like it's, it's wild. Um, but it's not like, uh, like Montserrat. I watched footage from that, and or at least it hasn't gotten to that level just yet. But watching the Montserrat eruptions, it's pretty fascinating. But yeah, still, you know, natural disaster, kind of tragic for people. But uh, yes, the um, humanitarian crisis caused by volcanic eruptions on the Caribbean island of St. Vincent will last for months, a UN official has warned. Didier Chabuk said nearby islands, including Barbados, Antigua, and Barbuda, also could be affected badly. He said the UN was setting up an international funding appeal. About 20,000 people have been evacuated from their homes since La Soufrière volcano began erupting last Friday. It has not previously erupted since 1979. Mr. Chabuk, the UN coordinator for Barbados and the Eastern Caribbean, said clouds of ash were continuing to pour from the volcano every day. Quote, we are expecting that continuous explosions of ash will fall we are expecting that continuous explosions in Asheville will continue over the coming weeks in St. Vincent and the Grenadines, but also in neighboring islands such as Barbados, which has also been severely affected, as well as St. Lucia and Grenada, he told reporters. He described the situation as, quote, a crisis that will require humanitarian response, but also a response in terms of rehabilitation. This is a crisis that is going to last certainly more than six months in, in the subregion, in St. Vincent and other islands, he said. The UN says about 4,000 of the displaced are now living in 87 shelters, many of whom lack basic services such as drinking water. Others have moved in with families or friends, and some have taken boats to neighboring islands. Mr. Chabuk said water provisions was the main priority for eight teams, followed by shelter. Quote, the cleanup of the ashes, finally, is another important priority in terms of environmental health, but also clean up to make sure that life can come back to normal outside the red zone as soon as possible. On Wednesday, Prime Minister Ralph Gonsalves said that despite the dangers, many residents were choosing to stay on the island rather than be evacuated by ship. Quote, there are some people who want to go to different countries, but it's not a large number, he told, it, that he told a TV program in Grenada. Quote, they said they want to stay at home. I have been around several of the camps and that's the message. So that's what's happening there. And, you know, speedy recovery to them but it was certainly interesting uh, to see just the response there and you know i'm curious about um just you know if you know coming from the virgin islands if they've had like ash fall or anything there because you know that ash can get up in there uh up in the atmosphere and really affect uh there's just you know everything really i mean we you know have the yellowstone eruption that could happen and uh yeah, that could literally destroy, like, civilization as we know it. So, 
you know, volcanoes can cause serious effects. Um, and for this island nation, it's certainly disruptive, although they've been, you know, used to it, you know, over the periods. I mean, you know, when you live next to a volcano, you're naturally going to, you know, expect it to erupt. Um, I'm at the very least with the proper seismic, you know, uh, equipment, you can usually predict when an eruption is about to occur, which they were able to detect and make the proper uh, procedures and evacuations. But yeah, you know, that's what's happening there. There's some other volcanic activities that have occurred around the planet. But I wanted to focus on this specifically because it's causing such a, you know, disruption to people's daily lives. Um, and yeah, just to examine, you know, how to move forward and how people are handling it. So yeah, I mean, of course, people are trying to weather it. So we'll see what happens there. But yeah, so that was what's happening there. And I wanted to talk about also just different like uh, weather events that have been happening in uh, the south. Lately, we've been having some you know, thunderstorms, rains. Um, you know, there's been floodings in some parts of the country, like especially Tennessee and such. Uh, at least in my local area, we've just had, or at least today right now, it's cloudy. We've had some showers, but, you know, with all this cloudiness, we still haven't had, like, consistent rain. There was only, like, one day of, like, a downpour that we had recently, but never, like, you know, consistent rain throughout the day. So it's really wild. Like, some days you're just like, okay, it's a bit hot out. You could, you, you could deal with some clouds and rain. And then the rain and the cloud comes and it's a downpour, like a monsoon. So like, okay, whoa, that's too much. Uh, go back to the sunshine and clear skies. And then sunshine and clear skies, everybody's melting. It's just ugh, climate change, man. So, yeah, that's what's happening there. And, of course, we have the hurricane season coming up that we have to deal with um, or prepare for, really. And there are uh, reports of an incomplete levy in South Texas. Now, for whatever reason, I just had an article pulled up, but then now it's making me having to sign into some premium program. So I can't exactly read the articles that I was listing off. But the synopsis of it is that uh, under Trump, they had to basically make openings for like heavy equipment and machinery to move through the levy to, to construct on the border wall. But now with this uh, Biden administration, they've effectively halted border construction, although there's still reports of it continuing. So it's really in limbo at the moment. Um, but with this levy that's in South Texas that they had to open up, they, are, they aren't filling it in. There's really no efforts to fill it in. And we're like, like basically a month out from hurricane season. Uh, and, you know, the locals are worried because, you know, they... Their whole town could be flooded and wiped away if things aren't, you know, uh, taken care of. But yeah, uh, that's at least what's happening for here. I mean, you know, apart from like small rainfalls, I think we're kind of entering a drought period. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it because we get some rain, but not enough rain, if that makes sense. And I certainly feel like a drought is possible, but who knows? We still have to see everything is happening but yeah i mean i'm looking at my uh radar and yeah there's certain the fires are starting to pop up so i'm at least glad that there's some rain clouds i guess 
but you know, it, there's there's green, so that's you know good at least you know because after the uh, the snowstorm everything was dead and that was really freaky. But it's good to see some life back, you know. Um, and I hope it stays that way, and I hope we get consistent rain cover, uh, rain showers, and cloud cover throughout the summer because this heat is killer, man. You know, we definitely don't want to get any fires out here. Um, but I did want to talk about another fire situation that is occurring in South Africa. You know, South Africa is on the collapse radar, and it's a case of arson. And they're showing, they're saying that a man has been detained in relation to out of control fires in Cape Town. So reading this from CNN, um, the uh, out of control fires in Cape Town, which began on Sunday morning and continued to blaze 24 hours later. Uh, quote: One suspect in his 30s was taken. One suspect in his 30s was taken into custody last night in the vicinity of Devil's Peak. The city of Cape Town said in a statement. Authorities will investigate speculation that additional fires were started and whether the original fire was an act of arson, the statement added. Around 150 firefighters were tackling the blaze on Monday, which began in Cape Town's Table Mountain uh, National Park, damaging buildings and prompting evacuations of hikers from the city's most famous landmark. Adverse weather conditions are hampering firefighters' efforts to put out the blaze, according to the city of Cape Town, which said the blaze is not under control yet. Wind is a major contributing factor. Aerial firefighting support remains grounded due to strong winds. An update shared on Facebook said two firefighters were injured and admitted to the hospital and nine structures were destroyed by the blaze. Jermaine Carlise, a spokesperson for the Cape Town Fire and Rescue Services, told CNN in an email on Sunday, the fire is now spreading in the direction of Verdehoek, located in the City Bowl, on the slopes of Table Mountain, a, all schools in the area have been asked to evacuate. Quote, all efforts remain focused on active firefighting for the moment, although the fire is hard to reach in places, and we hope that aerial firefighting support can be deployed to douse the flames before it reaches the urban edge. The city of Cape Town's Twitter account said on Monday morning. Historic Library ablaze. The fire completely gutted the historic reading room of the University of Cape Town's Jagger Library on Sunday and forced the evacuation of students. The executive director of University of Cape Town's libraries, Ujela Stakor, said staff watched with horror and helplessness as the elegant and historical built library burned. Oh man, that sucks. Well, uh, some of our valuable collections have been lost. However, full assessments can only be done once the building has been declared safe and we can enter the building, Stakor added. Well, it is tragic that literary treasures have been lost at the UCT library, but I have been informed that some of the most valuable works have been saved by the quick activation of roller doors. Cape Town's executive mayor, Dan Plato, said in a statement, private homes were damaged in the fire as well as the Rhodes Memorial Restaurant and historical structures such as the Mostert's Hill Windmill, according to Satgore. I wish to express our gratitude for the efforts of firefighters who have been working nonstop to bring this massive fire under control, Plato added. Yeah, so that's unfortunate with um, those fires and the, the loss of the library. But yeah, with this uh, summer, we can certainly see more fires, particularly with the West Coast again. Uh, and it's, uh, it's going to be wild. It's going to be a hot, hot summer, that's for sure. And lastly, before I wrap up with the main program, I also want to talk about this uh, situation in Florida with this uh, 
toxic waste reserve that is on the verge of collapse and is effectively released into the ocean. So hundreds of residents in Manatee County, Florida, were ordered to evacuate their homes over Easter weekend as officials feared that a wastewater pond could collapse at any time. On Saturday, Florida Governor DeSantis declared a state of emergency for the area. The local state of emergency was extended by county commissioners on Tuesday. County officials said in the pond, located at the former Piney Point Phosphate Processing Plant, had a significant leak, according to CBS affiliate uh, WTSP-TV. The Manatee County Public Safety Department told people near the plant to evacuate due to an imminent uncontrolled release of wastewater. A portion of the containment wall at the leak site shifted laterally, said Manatee Director of Public Safety Jake Sauer, signifying the structural collapse could occur at any moment. Acting Manatee County Administrator Scott Hopes met with the Manatee County Commissioners Tuesday and said the situation remains dynamic but also signaled a more optimistic outlook. About two weeks after the latest issues first detected at Piney Point, a team of engineers and experts was assembled. Hope said that the one leak of major concern at the moment is the one at the southeast corner of the South Pond. On Sunday night, thermal imaging detected a change in temperatures in the pond that were thought to be another breach. Hope said on Tuesday that further investigations showed that vegetation had sparked a temperature change and that there, there was no second breach. Water from the existing breach was previously emptying into Piney Point Creek, but Hopes said on Tuesday that there is no longer the case, that the water is instead being diverted. Officials are pumping the breach water into a 35 million gallon pond that has a liner in it and has not been used at the Piney Point site. There are currently about 300 million gallons of water remaining in the reservoir and officials are pumping out about 223,500 gallons per minute. Hopes told commissioners on Tuesday there are two drone teams deployed monitoring the situation. Water sampled from the pond on Monday indicates that the water is not radioactive. The Florida Department of Environmental Protection said on Monday and the department is collaborating with surrounding counties and a Tampa Bay estuary program to sample water from 11 locations and obtain water quality information. Water sample results are now available online, although the nutrient composition does not yet appear to be available. Uh, Manatee County Commissioner Kevin Van Ostenburg, Austin Bridge said on Tuesday that the water they are, quote, putting into Tampa Bay is the least of the evils and that they are dealing with quote, high levels of nutrients. Hopes also said that the water is not toxic, but that regardless, it is a big problem. The other ponds on the property and the property in and of itself is a problem. It is a wastewater compound. A majority of what we're dealing with is being contained on site. This is a pretty lengthy article, but they're just going through over the uh, just different waste management. But yeah, this is a pretty serious situation in the state of emergency. And they're saying it's not toxic, but then you look at the, like you look at the leak site and you look at the vegetation that it comes into contact with. It's just death. It's just all dead. So yeah, not toxic at all, man. But yeah, it's this is a pretty wild situation. I mean, it's uh, Florida. What you gonna do? We're just polluting our oceans and turning it into radioactive acid that. So we'll see what happens there. With that being said, I feel like this is a good place to wrap it up. But you know, I just wanted to you know talk about certain things and not impart my views on it not that they're really substantial it's just you know what i have to say on it but you know i do appreciate y'all you know sticking around and dealing with me and i'm gonna try to be more consistent you know once i deal with all these 
you know, problems that I have to deal with, you know, because I'm trapped under the pressures that we always talk about class issues. And yeah, I don't know where I'm going with this, but, you know, it's still uh, just uh, thanks for listening in and, you know, dealing with me. And, you know, if you like the work that I do and think that it's worth time, you know, definitely donate on Patreon. One dollar a month, 48 hour access. And uh, yeah. I'll just uh, keep you all updated, you know, especially on the Twitter and the Instagrams, although, you know, I'm pretty silent on there most of the times. But yeah, just uh, follow me there and we'll have a good time, I guess. Yeah. So thanks for tuning in and uh, I'll see you on the next one. Thank you.